1: Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 140. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's trifecta time, folks. Three back-to-back quickies by three different authors read by three different storytellers, all loosely pertaining to some theme. This being our 10th Trifecta special, and this also being the Drabblecast, the theme of this week's show is absurdity. Not surreal absurdity like Tom Cruise or the Saints-Patriots game last week, but the philosophical discourse of absurdism from people like Camus and Kierkegaard, who wrote about the incongruity between the human search for meaning and the universe's lack of meaning. On the one hand, you have man's desire for significance, meaning, and clarity, and on the other hand, you have a silent, cold universe with less answers than any given season finale of Lost. Camus wrote that encounters with the absurd leave the individual with only three choices, recognition, leap of faith, or suicide. Later great minds will no doubt recognize the obvious fourth choice, to watch TLC reality shows all day. Kate Goslin is such a strong woman. She deserves better than John anyway. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. She was totally smothering him. I just don't see how they do it. Eight kids? How do you find the time for romance? Half-Asian babies are so cute. For our first absurd story, we bring you Invisibility for Beginners by Michael Swanwick. Michael has received the Hugo, Nebula, Theodore Sturgeon, and World Fantasy Awards for his work. His stories have appeared in Omni, Penthouse, Amazing, Asimovs, High Times, New Dimensions, Full Spectrum, and Elsewhere. Many have been reprinted in best-of-the-year anthologies and also translated for Japanese, Dutch, German, Italian, Spanish, Swedish, French, and Croatian publications. The story is read to you by one of the most likable guys on the internet, second only to that cat that plays keyboard. Alistair Stewart. Alistair is the editor at Hub Magazine and the host of Pseudopod, the weekly horror fiction podcast. You'll find links to both of those in our show notes, and they're both rad markets, so check them out. So without further ado, Invisibility for Beginners, by Michael Swanwick.
2: Invisibility is the easiest to acquire magical skill there is. You can learn to make yourself invisible in minutes. All you will need is the help of a few friends, an appropriate starting place, and these instructions In on a bright, clear day, the weather should be warm, for reasons that will be obvious shortly. Having previously located a spot where deep shadow and bright sunshine exist adjacent to one another, beneath an overhang in the doorway of a shed, stand motionless in the shadow. Position your friends outside at a medium distance. Ask them if they can see you or not. There may be some nervous snickering amongst them at this point. Ignore it. Ignore it. When your friends show you that you are quite unseeable, you may move on to step two. Since invisibility is a psycho-spiritual attribute, it only applies to your body. Remove your clothing. Now close your eyes. Make your mind blank. Think Zen. When you have achieved a calm, clear, meditative state, mentally tell yourself, I am invisible. I am a thought upon the wind. I cannot be seen, I am the absence of thought in the lightless void between the stars. The exact words are not actually that important. What matters is putting yourself in a mentally invisible state. This stage should not take more than two or three minutes. Even a spiritual moron can achieve invisibility in four. Now. Eyes still shut, take one long stride forward, into the sunshine. There may be some stifled laughter, shrieks or even whoops from your friends at this point. You know what chokers they are. Rest assured that they absolutely cannot see you. Your friends will confirm this, if you wish. Open your eyes. You are now invisible. There is a chance you will be able to see your own body. Your hand held before your eyes will look exactly as it always has. Don't be alarmed. This simply means that you have exceptional spiritual sensitivity. So does the existence of a shadow. Nobody else can see that either. Now that you're invisible, take advantage of it. Jump up and down. Run about like a fool. Crouch down and waggle your bum. It doesn't matter what you do because you are invisible. Your friends, being the kid as they are, may well guffaw, howl with laughter and even roll on the ground clutching their sides. They know you're out there somewhere and probably doing something silly, but again, they cannot see you. Nobody can so many things an invisible person can do. You might go sightseeing in the shower room at the local Y, rearrange the money in the cash registers of department stores when the clerk isn't looking, follow people into their homes unnoticed. You can convince them these homes are haunted by making eerie noises and causing items to float in the air. The possibilities are endless. Your friends, at this point, are doubtless clutching each other to keep from falling over from the joy that comes from having a dear pal learn a new magical skill. Forget about that. Have you planned out your day yet? Good. Now, go to town.
1: Our next story was written by one of my personal favorite podcast and radio personalities, Frank Key, and it's called Bubbles Surge from Froth. Frank's the force behind HootingYard.org, a wonderfully weird and hilarious site of stories and ramblings, as well as Hooting Yard on the Air, a radio show on Residence FM and a podcast. It's got a new book coming out this month called We Were Puny, They Were Vapid that will no doubt find a home on my place, right next to my stuffed Yorkshire terrier. You'll find a link to that in our show notes. The book, not the terrier. So without further ado, Bubbles Surge from Froth by Frank Key. Bubbles Surge Hot pan, hot pan. Do the bubbles carry infection, disease, bad vapor, the sickness unto death? We shall find out. We coax some bubbles into a bubble container box and cart it to the bench. We have apparatus on the bench with which we can apply all sorts of tests to the bubbles. Testing is overseen by our captain, he deters the sort of larking about to which we are tempted when we get to test things with the apparatus on the bench. Our captain has a Bjorn Borgish air. He is glacial in the midst of pandemonium. When we complete the bubble tests, it is clear that infection is present. And not just present, virulent. Oh, thank heaven for our suits and serums! Our captain raises one Roger Moore eyebrow, a signal we know, to cool the pan and diminish the bubbling. This is duly done, but done ineptly, and there is an escape of gas. The gas is more toxic than the bubbles. Hooters are activated. We gather in the field as per our drill. There are cows in the field. "'munching vegetation. "'We have already tested the vegetation "'and passed it with bright flags, "'as we do, "'and so we know the cows are safe. "'Our captain counts us. "'He counts the cows, too, "'for no apparent reason. "'It is the same number of cows "'as it was yesterday "'and will be tomorrow. "'Surely our captain knows that. "'Perhaps he does not anymore. "'This may be the first sign.' Diligent in his duty, our captain was the last one out. We were all gathered in the field, in our designated rectangular patch, while he was still inside. He must have breathed in some of the gas. And those cufflinks he sports, so elegant, so chic, yet so sharp at the edges. Could a chance swipe of a cufflink have rent a rip in the bubble box? Might our captain have swallowed an escaped bubble, or even the whole sample? He has counted us, and he has counted the cows, and now he is counting the clouds. Poor Captain. The gas and the bubbles are ravaging his cranial innards. Synapses are snapping in all the wrong ways, or snapping at the wrong time, or not snapping at all. He flaps his arms as he carries on his imbecilic counting, and now we can see bubbles coming out of his ears. We round upon the nitwit who muffed the pan-cooling. We berate him for the catastrophe he has caused. He is infuriatingly insouciant, leaning against a cow and lighting a cigarette. It's like berating Noel Coward. But what is that poking out of his breast pocket? It looks very much like a green cardboard triangle, as carried by the communists in at least one Mickey Spillane novel. Could it be there is a traitor in our midst? A captain is now counting the birds in the sky. Somehow he has managed to get them to keep still for him in mid-flight or swoop or dive as he counts. At least his derangement has not atrophied his captaincy of the elements. We can take advantage of the stillness to subjugate the Bolshevik and Later in the canteen, our captain congratulates us on our quick wits. He still has bubbles pouring out of his ears, but he has stopped counting things for the time being and seems more like his usual self. He has suggested we lay him out on the bench and test him with the apparatus, so we will do that after tea time. The most curious thing about the whole episode is that the number of cows in the field seems to be getting progressively fewer. I have counted them over and over again. In fact, I am still counting them. But each time I count, there is one less cow to be counted. And yet the birds are once again in motion in the sky above, the kami is bound and chained and tethered, and the bubbles are pouring out of my ears too, just as they are from our captain's. And I am flapping my arms. Huge, energetic, flapping motions. Flap, 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 flap. Our final story is called Outside the Box, and it's written by John Haggerty. John is a pale and emaciated man living in California, a place that does not shower affection on the pale and emaciated. On the plus side, he has a lovely and graceful wife and a curiously non-violent dog. His work has appeared in War, Literature and the Arts, Quiddity International, World Riot, and the 2007 Bridport Anthology, among others. He's currently at work on a novel, which he hopes will someday be performed as a giddy 60-hour marathon drabblecast. ooh In the narration, we have Les Howard, host of The Signal, which is now in its fifth year of celebrating all things Firefly and Serenity. If you're a fan of either, you'd be doing yourself a disservice not checking them out. It's a great show. So here it is, Outside the Box by John Haggerty. Yeah, but with more of a kind of guttural thing in the middle. Arg. That's it? Sure. It's edgy, it's kicky, it's fun. What does it mean? Uh, well, you know, I want to feast on the flesh of the living. Or something.
3: Jesus, you have two months to come up with a campaign, and you bring me this? Christ, how about flesh it's fresh, or the human meat I want to eat? I mean, I'm just spitballing here. Just throwing stuff out, and it's better than arg. Uh, uh More like... Arrgh. You know, kind of raspy. That's not the freaking point. The point is that some weird moan is not an advertising tagline. More meat, let's eat.
1: Now that's an advertising tagline. Tremendous stuff, Rob. Brilliant. We really lost a major talent when they kicked you upstairs. Really, really Great. Uh, But here's the thing, we don't know if they understand English anymore. It's pretty much all moans and lurching slowly about. And, uh, to be honest... What? Spit it out? Well, uh, some of us are wondering if this is a market segment we should really pursue. Are you crazy?
3: Are you out of your freaking mind? Have you seen the numbers? I have spreadsheets that will blow your eyes out of the back of your heads. The post-living market is just exploding. It's the single fastest growing demographic in the country right now. And you're telling me you don't want to pursue it? Well, there's just that whole...
1: Ethical... Gray area. It's a gray area. Yes, the idea of selling human flesh to zombies is something of a gray area, ethically. But beyond that, we just don't know very much about them. They don't seem to spend money or engage in leisure activities. They aren't interested in sex at all, and that takes a lot of bullets out of the gun, marketing-wise. Aside from an obvious attraction to eating... uh, Um the rest of us. We really don't know how to incentivize them. And so far, the focus groups have not gone well. Really, really bad, in fact. Bullcrap.
3: You're all on a freaking failure safari here. Let me bottom line it for you. I want this. It's the most exciting emerging market I have ever seen. We are going to own it. We're going to tear it a new asshole. And this team is going to find a way or you're going to find new jobs. Thompson. You've been awfully quiet today. You're the executive on this account. Any sage words? Do you suppose we could get one single pearl
1: of wisdom out of your overpaid mouth? Uh, Sorry, sir. It's just that, well, my wife, um, transitioned last night. She transitioned? Thompson, that is excellent news. Not really.
3: She, well... No, don't you see? You've got a courtside seat at the hottest game in town. Tremendous. This changes everything. I want you to get inside her head, find out what makes her tick, take her apart, and put her back together again. Crawl up inside her and root
1: around. That's... Um, well, that's kind of the thing, see? She, you know, she attacked my son, and uh, there was a bit of a struggle, and, um... Uh, In the end, I had to pin her up against the wall with one of the dining room chairs while my son hit her over and over and over again with a baseball bat, and she just wouldn't quit and he hit her and hit her and hit her and there were these awful kind of crunching and squishing sounds where he was pulverizing her skull and her head flattened on the side that he was hitting her but she was still so strong and I think some of her brains got in my hair and there was this awful stench this terrible smell of rotting flesh and death and fresh blood and then the chair shattered and she grabbed my son and was slowly pulling him toward her mouth except that half of her jaw was gone and she couldn't really get a good bite and finally I took the leg of the broken chair it had a sharp end And I drove it through her shattered skull and held her like that and she was clawing at me with her rotting fingers, reaching for me, trying to pull me closer, and pieces of her flesh were rubbing off on my clothes and my face. And finally my son brought the sledgehammer from the basement. And I pinned her there. I impaled my wife against the dining room wall with that chair leg. And I think she's still there. I mean, I really, really hope she's still there. Because otherwise, I don't know where she would be. And that would be so much worse. Is she dead? Oh, God, I hope so. But they kind of start out that way, so it's really hard to tell for sure. Damn, that's a missed opportunity.
3: Well, did you get a chance to talk to her? Did she say anything?
1: She just sort of made noises uh like that uh, no uh
3: merg, uh pretty much nice that's actually got a really nice feel to it that's great rob you really have a talent for getting outside the box I love it. It's got energy. It's got kind of a hip-hop feel, doesn't it? Gentlemen, call the art department. They're going to be working late tonight. I've got a good feeling about this. We're gonna eat this market alive. You can catch me in the chatty so clean. Heavy twenty eights on each end like triple beans. Crispy air ones with each day of the week. Always matching the color of my peanut butter seeds. But don't get me confused with them dudes that you used to. Cause I'm the new blood from the south that you lose to. Talking not cruise through your hood. It's all good. Got the chopper in the back. Tell me where
2: the haters at. I'm all about the stack shorties. Love the holler
1: back. Well, those were our stories. Hope you enjoyed them. Let's catch back up with listener feedback. We left off with episode 136, our Halloween special, which featured The Great Old Pumpkin by John Agard. In this one, H.P. Lovecraft met Charles Schultz, and we got a retelling of Linus's Great Old Pumpkin Charlie Brown Halloween special. R.O.U. Killing Time said, this was a jolly fun story, one of those tales where predictability is a virtue, not a flaw. It wasn't long until I was wondering where they would bring Snoopy into the picture, and lo and behold, he showed up right on cue. I liked the aboriginal squeaks from Woodstock, too. DKT said, holy crap, what a great piece of Halloween tricks or treats. I laughed, I shouted, I did fist pumps in the air. Linus versus the Great Cthulhu. Awesome. I dug the X-Files sounding music that occasionally played in the background. Really, I can't say enough good things about this one. But not everyone liked it. HP Hovercraft, ironically, said, hmm, maybe it's my antipodean upbringing. We don't really do Halloween here. The occasional desultory trick-or-treaters that come around leave empty-handed, but not surprised. This story just couldn't hold me for more than a minute or so. I realize it was a parody. Perhaps that was it. It was a parody of something I have no real emotional stake in. Our forums are fun. Drop by and say hello if you have a minute. The winner of this week's 100-character TwitFix story contest—his story, already pushed out on our Twitter feed—is Strawman. Albert imagined he could hear the universe's orchestra. Eyes closed, he directed his attention to the string section. You should try writing one of those puppies. Post it in the TwitFix section of our forum if you do. You just might win the TwitFix crown of glory one of these weeks. Speaking of glorious crowns, we'd like to honor the Drabblecast kick-ass donor of the week. Nigel Thompson. Nigel is married and has two amazing kids, a daughter and a son. He's an ABD psychologist who is currently about six weeks or so from completing his dissertation on maternal dispositional mindfulness and pediatric asthma outcomes. Nigel's day job is psychology, but his true love is dharma, down-to-earth contemplative investigation into the makeup of subjective experience. I'm no genius at it, he says, but he sure does love it. That's great and all, Nigel, but have you watched TLC lately? I mean, trading spouses? It's outrageous. We appreciate Nigel and any other folks who donate to the show, even though you can get it free if you want. I know, what kind of screwed up business model is that, right? Relying on people to be generous if they have the means and enjoy the show? (laughs) Go and do it. You can't help yourself, you know it. It's because you've got sort of a hip hop vibe, I think. Oh, and before we go, special thanks to Chelsea Reagan for this week's episode art. Chelsea is a figurative painter who's currently working on getting into graduate school for an MFA in painting, while framing, painting nudies, and directing a gallery in downtown Thomasville, Georgia in her spare time. You can see her current work at www.chelseareagan.com or check out her blog at particlesofarticles.blogspot.com. So, hey, that's our show. You know the deal. We're produced with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it or sell it, but share it as much as you want. Write us a review on iTunes or Podcast Alley. Blog about us. We'll marry you and live happily ever after with you. Unless you're a dude, and then only Editor Luke will. Sorry. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to watch those cufflinks.